From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Dr. Josie Schaefer, Director of the Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. It's not just one thing. It's a really complicated cost calculus when someone makes the decision to move out of state and no one thing is going to drive them all the time. You're going to hear people move to Texas and go, no income tax is awesome. But they probably didn't move to Texas for no income taxes. They moved because they had a great job and then realized no income taxes are awesome. But for instance, I left Texas. I also left Nevada. Those are both no income tax states. So... It's not one thing, and there are places just like Nebraska that are doing okay. And so there's lots to explore in that middle space for us. We're talking about the increasing concern about brain drain, what Nebraska can do about it, and whether all the kids these days really care about is property taxes. Later in the show, Joshua LeBure reviews the documentary Ryuchi Sakamoto, Coda. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. A listener of the show recently told me that he thinks there's a regular subtext in the episodes, which is, I'm talking to a cool person to try to figure out why they live in Nebraska. That was not part of the original pitch for this show, but the fact that it has become part of the dynamic for some listeners tells me a little bit about the way educated people think about Nebraska in the age of brain drain. Which is to say that the expectation is, if you're an ambitious young person, you'll probably leave. This is at a point where, over the past decade, as the Nebraska Examiner has reported, more people have continued to leave than enter Nebraska from other states, and the loss is heavily those with an education level of at least a bachelor's degree. My guest today is Dr. Josie Schaefer, director of the Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, who recently presented her research on Nebraska's concerning demographic trends to top education officials, and she's here today to talk to me about the implications of that research. Later in the show, Joshua LeBure reviews the documentary Ryuchi Sakamoto, Coda. Here is our conversation. I feel like the best place to start is probably with defining the concept of brain drain. So what, what's your operating definition? Absolutely. Uh, brain drain is net out-migration of persons with a bachelor's degree or more. So persons with a bachelor's degree or more, that's the brain part of brain drain, higher levels of educational attainment. And then the drain is net out-migration. I think it's important to point out that here in Nebraska, about 45,000 people come into the state every year. It's just that 50,000 go out of the state every year. So there's a fair amount of movement. So we hear all the time, well, I know someone who moved here. People do move here. It's just more people move out. So then we talk about, so that's gross migration, all of the movers. But net domestic migration is the number of people who that we net either in or out after some people come in, some people go out, and that is net negative here in Nebraska. So we are net negative for those with a bachelor's degree or more, brain drain instead of brain gain. I assume that 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 term did not originate in academia probably, right? Great question. I do not know the origin story. (laughs) It's got to be a fairly new phenomenon, right? So it's interesting. Many states, not just Nebraska, have brain drain. Many states have brain gain. I would say in the region, Colorado is really known for brain gain. Lots of folks with bachelor's degree or more moving into the state net. 
right? Mm -hmm. They're gaining those folks. Uh, But Nebraska, since 2010, we've been tracking it, has been consistently net negative. But in 2020 and 2021, we actually saw the numbers increase a little bit. We were more like 2,500, and now we're more like 4,500. So it's not a huge number. There's actually 400,000 people with bachelor's degree or more living right here in Nebraska. It's not like we lose everyone with that level of educational attainment. But that that is increasing is a trend we want to watch. So is, is it a uniquely Midwestern phenomenon, brain drain? No, no absolutely not. Uh, California, I know. I can look up the stats for you, but there's lots of states that are gaining and there's lots of states that are losing. Well, so uh, Nebraska has been dealing with this since 2010, you said? Um, since or- 2010, we've been tracking that data, absolutely, okay. using data from the United States Census Bureau. Did something happen in 2010 to start this process, or is it just when they started looking at it? Uh, the the American Community Survey, which is the specific survey product from the Census Bureau that we use to track that, really uh, had some changes in terms and survey questions and things like that. And so that's kind of our starting point for tracking. Okay. Well, so I, I know uh, there, there's a lot of concerns. It's something that comes up a lot, especially with legislative sessions. And so former governor, now Senator Pete Ricketts, Often he, his attribution for uh, the causes of brain drain was pretty much exclusively property taxes, at least when he would give big, big press conferences. Uh, generally, a lot of other people will say there's probably some cultural trends that make an impact as well. But let's start with the, the way Ricketts has often framed it. How much to do, does the data suggest property tax worry factors into brain drain? So there are a couple different survey products we can use to answer that question. And pretty consistently, cost of living more broadly and taxes as a component of cost of living is not cited as the reason people leave Nebraska. So one survey product is the current population survey from the Bureau of Labor. And in fact, that survey, it is very clear the number one reason folks leave Nebraska is related to jobs. And that is what my research seems to suggest. And I can talk about that more broadly. I'll also say there in 2019, we worked with the Greater Omaha Chamber to do a survey on LinkedIn where we found folks on LinkedIn who had Nebraska somewhere in their profile, but were no longer in Nebraska. And we direct messaged them and said, hey, will you take a survey if you've ever lived in Nebraska and don't now? And so we had over 500 respond to that survey. And we asked that question and we asked specifically about taxes, not just cost of living, but cost of housing, cost of property tax, cost of income tax, overwhelmingly there. Jobs, job opportunities, and pay were the number one by far reason folks left. And a lot of people actually said taxes and cost of living were a reason to come back to Nebraska. So jobs in the sense that if I'm going to go through schooling, either I'm going to take out the loans and have to pay them back, or I'm going to pay for my schooling, I would like to be able to then be be in a, a, a bracket, a salary bracket that relates to my education level. So that's absolutely it. But if we, I have plotted, so how what occupations folks work in here in Nebraska, by which ones are high wage above the median income and which ones are low wage below the median income. Today in Nebraska, more people work below the median income. So that set of jobs like education's actually in there, but arts inter- entertainment and recreation, social services, um, uh, administrative support, sales, right? Those jobs don't pay as much, but we have more people working in those types of jobs. 
those are also, those lower wage jobs are less likely to be filled by high skill folks, those with bachelor's degrees or more. We're also seeing a very dynamic change in the labor market nationally and in Nebraska, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic. Those high wage jobs are growing at a really rapid pace compared to those low wage jobs. Just 2018 to 2021, we saw much more than was projected in change in those high wage jobs nationally and here, but we're still more of a low wage job market and low wage jobs are not are the opposite of correlated with high skill jobs. So those folks getting those bachelor's degrees are going to be coming out looking for those great jobs, computer, math, architecture, and engineering. And while we absolutely have those jobs, I would describe it as a thin labor market for those high demand jobs. We have them, they're open, but we don't have lots of them. And some of those really highly competitively skilled folks coming out with those bachelor's degree or more are going to be looking for jobs where they have growth potential, advancement potential. If they don't like the culture in one place, they can jump to another job. And when we have a thin labor market, we don't have as many of those opportunities. So I believe we're seeing people leave the state following those high demand, high skill, high wage jobs. And not just that they exist, because of course we have them, but there's thick labor markets. There's lots of those jobs, so they have options. Why is it that Nebraska does not have a uh, thicker labor market for some of those jobs? That is a really good question. Something I'm doing research on and will continue to do research on but I think a lot has to do with the agricultural economy, right? For a long time, agriculture has been our major source of GDP, has been a major profession. And that is, but that's really changed over time too. Not that many people actually work in agriculture here in Nebraska, even though so much of our land is associated and so much of our economy is associated with it. And then we kind of moved into manufacturing. That's a lower wage, lower skill job as well. Super important, not challenging the integrity of the job. But when I talk about skill, it's those you don't want your doctor, right, or your healthcare tech to not have a bachelor's degree or more. So that's what we mean by skill and that level of educational attainment. And that's not required in manufacturing, but it keeps wages kind of suppressed, kind of low. I'll also say it is a wage problem, too. When you have a lot of low-wage jobs, we actually pay competitively for those low-wage jobs. It's classic supply and demand. We have a lot of those jobs, so we have to attract people to come in. And we see that in um, low-skill gain. So usually folks with high school degrees or some college degrees, we actually net into the state. Not recently, but over time, we've been net positive for that. So filling those low-wage jobs has been easy and we've been attractive, but we're still losing people at that high wage level. Has the, the thin labor market existed for a long time or is it something that has happened in the 21st century as markets have sort of shifted and new tech has changed jobs and all that? Yeah, we're not a very populous state. So having a thick market in any one place or in any one occupation group is going to be a challenge. And so, yes, I would say we've been thin. We're not particularly dense. We don't have big cluster economies or cluster occupations coming into the state. So it's not surprising. Uh, many states are driven by low-wage workers as compared to high-wage workers. That dynamic shift that we're seeing, though, is going to speed up in certain places where there are clusters and thick markets for those high-wage jobs, computer, math, architecture, and engineering like that. But is there a, 
a move toward turning Nebraska into a thicker market. Is that possible? I think it's absolutely possible. It's certainly um, something we have to really think very hard about and how to do. It's going to happen at a policy level. It has to happen in institutions, particularly of higher education. I think institutions of higher education already recruit people here. We have to work to train them to match their skills to what the workforce really wants. Uh, I think the kind of smallness of Nebraska could actually be an advantage with that, right? If we can say, hey, we know exactly the skills our workforce needs and we're going to produce really prepared students that on day one are ready for those high skill jobs we feel really comfortable with, I think we could be exciting to businesses. There's actually a theory in economic development. Some people believe that jobs follow people, right? So if there's a group of highly skilled workers that are just the right fit for my jobs. And that group of people want to live in a certain area, either for the amenities, the values, family relationships, things like that. Those jobs are going to follow them. Right now, I believe people follow jobs here in Nebraska, at least, right? That's that idea that net domestic out migration is something we're seeing. Why are they leaving job opportunities? Then people are following jobs. We want to shift that dynamic. We want folks to want to stay in Nebraska, and a lot do. And I think Nebraska is a, we talk about sticky places. People like Nebraska. Uh, retirees actually don't move that often. We find after 65, people tend to stay in place in Nebraska. Young people have families here. They're going to want to stay. There are good aspects of the quality of life and culture in places throughout the state. So if we get folks to stay and they're the right skilled workers for the jobs, the jobs are going to follow the people. It's going to take some work because it's not what we're seeing today, but it is possible. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Josie Schaefer, Director of the Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, about the problem of brain drain. What do you think could help either retain or attract young educated people to Nebraska? Let us know. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. One of the, the ideas in there is making Nebraska seem... Uh, like an attractive, cool place to go. I, I was thinking as you were saying that, I think we're, what, 49th for tourism in the country? I don't know that one, but we are pretty low on tourism. Well, so, so it's not like there's this uh, – I think a lot of people don't feel a ton of incentive to come to Nebraska or keep it on their radar, right? It's difficult probably if you don't have a tie to Nebraska or you're not looking specifically at a job here to think about Nebraska. I think that's very true. However, I think if we kept everyone that was here, that's a good way to start. I really want to focus on retain to begin, right? Because I think people would be excited by that. Why are those Nebraskans not going anywhere else? What are they doing over there and how do I get in on that? Um, businesses want folks that want to stay in place, that want to work at one place for a long time. They might really like, and Nebraskans are so hardworking, our metrics across our labor market are just so impressive, right? Every metric, we are just one of the most hardworking in the state. That's going to be attractive to folks. Oh, wait, they like staying in Nebraska. They like living in Nebraska, low cost of living, and they work hard. I do think they'll follow us, but we have to focus, I think, on keeping folks before we start attracting. So to keep folks and to uh, start to address some of this, one of the other elements beyond the jobs and beyond the potential uh, property taxes or related issues would just be the culture of the state, which 
my understanding is that has some issues as well in retaining young, educated people. Uh, so what are, what are some of those cultural concerns? Sure. So this is kind of that theory of jobs follow people. And so when people love a place, they're going to stay in that place. And usually that is far beyond just the jobs they have. It is quality of life, uh, including parks, recreation, restaurants, bars, entertainment, um, you know, the amenity factor. And it's also a a group of like-minded individuals. And that's different for everybody what a like-minded individual is. But we are absolutely um, starting to see the politics of the state, right? A unicameral legislature that's nonpartisan. I think that would have been really attractive to folks, right? We can all get around policy for the merits of policy versus the politics versus the culture wars and clash. But we're absolutely having some of those debates. Heard it today watching the legislature, right? And so, yeah, I think that'll turn some people off for sure. And I do think, um, you know, retirees and young college educated folks are very likely to have different political views. But it is that young college-educated group that are the movers. And so if we're trying to be attractive to those that are moving, those prime-age workforce, those folks that are really going to like be the engines of our economy, we're going to have to think a little bit differently. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the culture that Pete Ricketts seemed to really try to cultivate was one that was very much in line with whatever the National Republican Party looked like at the time. And so my understanding is generally college-aged young people are less likely to be Republican. Is that is that true? That is true nationally. I wouldn't say that's necessarily true in Nebraska. Okay. I think it's a fairly conservative state historically, and I think it will continue to be in a in certain ways. But there are social policies in particular, much more so than I would say like economic policy, for instance, that tend to really divide younger folks. So um, my understanding is that your research did show the trend of brain drain getting worse since the COVID pandemic. Right. What is, what's that all about? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think we thought during COVID no one was moving. But it was actually a time where particularly those so those high wage workers, those high skill occupations were much easier to go remote during the pandemic than those essential worker uh, type folks. And so then they had choices that might not have been available to them before. And so we actually saw more movement, not less. And I think a lot of folks thought, oh, everyone's going to come back to Nebraska. And we didn't quite see that. Uh, So certainly something to think about, especially as those high-wage jobs are the ones that are growing so fast and are so so mobile and are so remote. So it's something where then – you got to make things uh, comfortable and welcoming at the same time. And you've given a couple ideas for that. But is there a place you would say, all right, let's focus on this. Let's make this maybe our goal to try to shift things toward retaining and attracting? I think housing is a real potential area where Nebraska could make some inroads and lead and be really attractive. They could retain and even recruit. So We know that when folks move out of state, the most likely reason is because of jobs. And I think I want to clarify that one, too. If I'm in the workforce today, I'm in the workforce tomorrow. So while I'd love to go lay on the beach and, you know, join a picket line, I can't actually do that if I don't have a job. So when folks move out of state, they even if job is not the number one reason in their head, 
they're likely still working and it was important in some way, right? It's part of the cost calculus. When someone moves in state, the number one reason is housing. And that's actually pretty consistent in every state. So housing costs are just a big part of sort of the price of living, right? The price of living a good life. Housing availability, housing access, housing affordability, having housing that fits the lifestyle you want to lead. Housing costs have risen everywhere. Housing costs have actually risen really pretty fast in Nebraska and driven by Omaha, but also rural areas where there's not a lot of available housing. And so, again, supply and demand, it drives those prices up. So folks can't just necessarily move to a rural community and, you know, buy whatever house they want because it's cheap. And I think there maybe some folks believe that or anecdotally are like, oh, there's houses everywhere. But they're not necessarily what folks want. They're not very available. And that drives prices up. But if housing is such an essential part of having a great quality of life, and we know it is because that's what's driving moves otherwise, by thinking about providing homes that people want at great prices, extremely accessible, close to where people work. People hate commuting, especially on roads in Omaha. Uh, that's, that's very enticing. Homes also build wealth for folks. When folks can buy homes younger, they're going to be building wealth over their lifetime. Also, when you own a home, you're less likely to move away from that home. So it makes folks sticky here in Nebraska, too. So thinking about a range of housing policies that are really attractive to just that that young college-educated group, that's a real way Nebraska can make inroads. Well, a, a kind of adjacent issue is just that a lot of the rural communities are struggling to either maintain their levels or they're struggling because they are losing a lot of people. So, I mean, there's like this vision, this idea that maybe you can repopulate a lot of the rural parts of Nebraska, but it seems difficult. Yeah, I think that was something I heard during the pandemic, like, oh, folks are going to come back home. But we didn't see that. And it doesn't mean they'll never come back home. But I think we really have to use that moment and study what happened to answer that question. Housing availability was absolutely one point one part of it. In a lot of rural communities, I've even heard stories, a friend of mine uh, was a principal here in Omaha, superintendent in a rural community. They had to move into the other super, the old superintendent's house. It was the only one available, right? He retired and moved out, and that was the only house there. There's not a lot of development going on. And then those homes are older and might not be exactly what folks are looking for. I think we also need to talk about aging in place in those rural communities. And so making homes accessible over time to fit the lifestyle of aging adults is really important as well. So rural communities just don't have a lot of availability. And like I said, that drives up prices. And so folks can't come home. You also have to think if someone moved to Dallas, right? When they come back, they even if they really want to be in Nebraska to be by family or for their cost of living, they're now used to a certain lifestyle, that culture, the amenities, really good broadband that you would get in the city that you might not be able to recreate for them in some of these rural communities. And so it's just not a fit anymore. High quality education as well. Uh, Nebraskan, we're actually pretty high on our the rate of children we have compared to other states. And so we're trying to attract families. Families are going to want to put their kids in schools. They're going to want to feel it's the best quality no matter where they live. Yeah. Well, I know that there's the, the some of these 
institutions that might be helpful are also sometimes uh, part of the – they get dragged into the culture war and that becomes its own fight. So I know uh, Governor Pillen sort of – one of the things that he made a big deal about that he sort of made his name on in Nebraska leading up to becoming governor was that he wants to reform schools and universities and bring in some of what he thinks is uh, the type of culture that should be there and take out the type of culture he thinks should not be in there. Now, that seems like something where – we maybe I don't know. I don't know if that's the priority that's going to assess or that's going to help with brain drain, as opposed to maybe exacerbate some of the trends uh, where people say socially, this maybe is not what I think of when I think of the place I want to live. Young people value diversity in a way that I'm not sure others realize has become just so common. I actually do a rural youth survey for the Nebraska Community Foundation, and. We started about three years ago, and we've always asked a couple diversity questions. But even in the past three years, not we have seen the students respond that they value diversity, that they value unique ideas, that they don't like bullying, that they don't like people feeling marginalized, that they want to live in welcoming communities. And I, I'm just always so impressed. Like every time we get these surveys, we even ask a question, are you willing to advocate for diversity? And they are just overwhelmingly. And I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But I don't know that people um, always recognize that that's how we've been taught. That's what we learned in our schools. And now it's uh, it's a value we totally embody and embrace. I think you also have to note, like, the corporate culture has totally embraced diversity and just the innovation factor. And, right, when we're welcoming, when we're trying to attract people to those communities, we can't be choosy. <laughs> we want to welcome everyone. And so it's not just the policy, but it's how we talk about people. And this needs to be a state that says, come on in. Happy to have you. You know, we have workforce challenges even in those low-wage jobs. International migration is such a solution to a problem that we've been talking about now for two, three years. In fact, I like to fit, fit this stat in anywhere I can. The foreign-born labor force participation rate here in Nebraska is higher than the labor force participation rate for just white, the race white, right? Uh, we have one of the highest rates of working poor in the country, which isn't necessarily a good thing. But Everybody here is working. Everybody here is working hard. Everybody, if you're in the state, is a Nebraskan, and we we want to make people stay. And so we've really got to think about how we talk about folks, what we embrace, and how young people view this issue. And I think it's really different than some of the rhetoric you hear. Yeah, I think, though, there certainly is diversity here. If I'm somebody who maybe hasn't gone to Nebraska, doesn't know much about it, in any tangible way. I mean, like I, I remember as a kid, you'd go to a different state and someone would ask, do we, you, you guys have electricity, right? You know, so it's just like a completely no concept of what it's like here. Uh, I don't think the image of Nebraska, a lot of people conjure in their mind is one of a diverse working culture very much, right? Oh gosh. And that's, that's too bad. You know, that's absolutely the opposite of what I think we see. And I guess it comes from what people hear outside the state, but it's not what I see every day. It's not what I see in classrooms. It's not what I hear from students. Um, so I hate I hate that image for us. And I think it's probably something we can change really easily just by saying that's not who we are. Well, yeah, that, that kind of image rehabilitation or clarification is something that it, I, I imagine might be useful here. But it's got to 
exist in some kind of active way, right? You'd think from the top, you'd want to sort of project that as something that this is the kind of culture young people are interested in, as opposed to sort of like attacking some of that and saying, we're going to get rid of some of the diversity from our from our classrooms. We're going to attack that as opposed to sort of embracing it and making it something that, like you said, is a, a welcoming community, which is what young people generally are looking for. And it's a turnoff to corporations, right? We're trying to get jobs to follow people. So we want corporations to go, hey, they're going to welcome everyone we bring with us and everyone we want to recruit. And corporations have led on this topic for a while. They value diversity, they value innovation, and they're not going to want to exist in a culture that pits them against the politics of the state. They want to join in. Uh, So something to absolutely let people know that's not what Nebraska is about at all. I'm talking with Dr. Josie Schaefer, director of the Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha about the problem of brain drain. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Also, we have an exciting announcement, which is that Michael Griffin will be joining Riverside Chats as a recurring host. To learn more about Michael, you can listen to our March episode with him wherever you get podcasts. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Josie Schaefer, director of the Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, about the problem of brain drain why young, educated people are leaving the state, and what might be done to address it. Here's the rest of our conversation. Um, I saw in a report from the Nebraska Examiner that was talking about your research, uh, they mentioned that by 2030, 65% of jobs in the state will require at least some higher education, whereas today about 33% of Nebraska jobs are currently filled by people with bachelor's degrees. So, I mean, what, what are some of the implications there for the future of what work looks like here? Yeah, the future of work is changing really rapidly. Um, actually, I think President Carter of the University of Nebraska System said in my presentation, probably half the jobs that will exist in just a couple of years, we don't even know about yet, right? That's how much the workforce is changing and how rapidly the workforce is changing. And it is changing towards those high-skill jobs. High-skill is high-wage, is high-demand. So that's going to require institutions of higher education to be on the front lines of the workforce, to be finding out what those jobs are, how do we train folks to be ready for those jobs, how do we fill jobs today and fill jobs of the future? And I know the University of Nebraska at Omaha is really focused on both right now. We're only talking about workforce development, but of course that's what we do. But we're also saying, how do we fill the future of the workforce? It's a really rapid change. However, I would say in the state, I think we rank 
around 26 for the percent of the population with a bachelor's degree or more. So that doesn't make us very competitive. You add that plus we're already a small state, that doesn't suggest to folks outside of here that we have that high skill workforce that they're going to work that they're going to be looking for today or tomorrow. So something educational attainment is such an important skill for that future workforce. So this idea that some of the jobs of tomorrow we don't even know what they are now. Uh, what like what does that mean? Like what type of general sort of job is that envisioning? Yeah, so life life sciences, biological sciences. I think during the pandemic, right? Obviously, this was a healthcare pandemic, but the research demand. So like biological research grew like 200% in like two years. That's not something we're used to seeing, right? And yeah, there are sort of weird aspects of that job. I can't even tell you about It's not my area, but someone had to do a lot of research to be able to get those vaccines and get those vaccines out, figure out the origins of the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. And so we're just seeing, you know, big data, right? We couldn't imagine even a couple years ago when we started saying big data, how big data would be, right? When your phone knows when you turn directions and every time you tap it, right? There's so much data on the world and people are trying to find systems and processes to filter and then answer really important questions with all that data. Those are jobs, you know, that will just continue to flourish as we create more data, as new problems arise and research has to solve them. So how do you get more people to go to college? Oh, gosh. You you welcome them on in. Yeah, I think a lot of that, again, I think is some supply and demand. As those jobs become more available, as those jobs become more attractive because of pay, because of culture, because of ability to work remote, it starts to change folks' minds. Um, both anecdotally, we saw this as well as in some of the data. Some folks in low-wage jobs, pandemic hit, didn't want to be on their feet all day, didn't want to put themselves in difficult positions in, you know, a server, restaurant, um, hair salon. This isn't comfortable for me anymore. This doesn't feel safe. They pulled out of that labor market, trained up, and, you know, then they showed up at TD Ameritrade or a bank or, you know, in all these other places, right? That's why we're losing those low-wage jobs and adding those high-wage jobs every year. So folks are recognizing that. I think that's one step, but then there's a lot of policies at the university level we can do. I know we are trying to keep tuition low, uh, celebrate lifelong learning. I think, right, that idea of you get a college degree and then you work in one job for the rest of your life, we're not seeing that the same way anymore. And so having opportunities for folks to kind of come in and then go back into the workforce and then want to learn a new skill in advance, really adaptive sort of approach. And I I think that's been coming for a while, but the pandemic really put the Put the speed on it. There's been a lot of sort of doom and gloom about humanities these days. What's the state of? Is that something that can be reformed and fixed? I think some. What was it? The New Yorker just did the death of the English major. Yeah. Was their headline? Oh my goodness! Right. If you can't be a data scientist, if you can't write, if you can't communicate, I mean, there is still so much value in general education. Um, I, you know, it, it's a balanced approach. We need careful skills, thoughtful training, but 
right? You need well-rounded human beings. Uh, I'm in the College of Public Affairs and Community Service, and we focus on experiential learning out in the community. So we see problems and how folks experience them, and we develop that, like, care and concern for each other in those classrooms. That's going to make a better computer scientist. That's going to make a better architect, right, having those experiences. And so um, you need a little bit of both. Well, yeah, and I know that that is how uh, the degrees are formed to make sure that you take a variety of types of courses that, in theory, broaden your horizons. Do you think that some of the structure of what a bachelor's degree looks like will change to try to address some of these workforce concerns in the future? Yeah, I think we're already seeing that uh, at UNO. We're talking about lowering the amount of general education you take, get folks into majors more. And there's a lot of really good reasons to do that. And I don't think we're lowering it too much or anything like that. Um, but I think folks are are going to want a little piece at a time that like lifelong learning. We're calling it micro-credentialing. So, you know, I really want to learn Excel. I don't need a whole program. I just really want to learn Excel. Come over to UNO and let's learn Excel. Go back, apply it at work, and then when you realize, well, I need a little bit more than just Excel. Come on, and we'll talk about how to, you know, you know how to think about problems to put in Excel or something like that. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. But it's it's still a balanced approach, and I think we still have to really trust universities to to want that for us, right? Instead of saying you're keeping people out of the workforce. Let's think about how much we're doing to put folks in the workforce that are ready and can handle those next big problems. I know that there's there's kind of a culture at UNO sometimes. Like when I when I was at UNO, <laughs> um, I'm just maybe maybe this isn't the story for the whoops. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just say, uh, when I uh, was talking about grad school, uh, some of my professors, pretty much all of the ones that I seriously talked to about it, they said. You should probably get out in Nebraska if you want to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. And it was in part because of the degree I was, I was going for. But I think sometimes there's like a, an internalized feeling that, you know, Nebraska can be kind of a jumping off point as opposed to the destination. Um, and I don't know if the, maybe that culture has changed. It's been a while. But uh, it, I don't know. It, there's attitudes about like UNO as something where UNL is usually where, you know, OK, we're going to go to the big school. That's the, the exciting one. UNO has been a little bit more of like a, there's maybe practical reasons, maybe whatever degree you're doing, it makes more sense to go there. But has UNO's image been changing or is that like a conversation to sort of shift it as something that's not just like, well, it's either UNL, UNO or UNK. And here's kind of where I'm not going to go to the cool one UNL. I'm going to I'm going to settle for one of these other ones. We have just an unbelievably dynamic chancellor. Chancellor Lee, I think she's been there about two years. She know, Or maybe just a, over a year. She knows the, the date exactly. Um, she is a really dynamic individual who I get excited every time she talks about just where UNO is going and the vision she has for UNO. And I'd say it, it's honestly gotten a bad rap. Like, I think we're so engaged in this community. I think we're absolutely providing the workforce of Omaha. I think we provide a lot of the great amenities. I went to a hockey game recently. It's awesome. You know, so I think we are a really good part of this city. It's probably gotten overlooked because of UNL being more of a flagship, um, having the football team, et cetera, being more of the traditional campus, campus experience, campus town. But in terms of the quality of my colleagues, the quality of my peers, the vision of our leadership, we also just uh, new senior vice chancellor, wonderful vision. Actually, 
uh, a UNO PhD student who's now been out and at great universities and is coming home because he had a wonderful experience here and is just so excited to do great things for UNO. So I do think the the vision has changed. There's moving recognition in the right way. Um, But I think we really do capitalize on that connection, that experience in this city. And with Omaha being the largest city in Nebraska, I'd watch out for us. <laughs> well, part of the, one of the things that we seem to want to have happen here is to make college cool, right? In addition to practical. Is, is that doable? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I think that's a lot of that, right? Amenities do attract students and they want to live in a nice place and they want to be able to go to great restaurants and they want to have an awesome sports experience. And again, living in Omaha, it's the best of what you can get in Nebraska on all of those fronts. You know, being right near Exarbin and Baxter Arena, there's a lot going on by UNO. I hear kids are really into streetcars, too. Kids do love public transportation. (laughs) Yes. So, actually, I mean, it is important to have those. And again, as a metro campus, I think we've been overlooked for the quality of life factor, but that's really growing pretty fast, too. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Josie Schaefer, director of the Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, about the problem of brain drain. What do you think could be done to either help retain or attract young, educated people to Nebraska? Let us know. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So it sounds like there's a lot of directions people can go in terms of trying to address brain drain. I'm curious, for the the states that have brain gain, what are they doing right? Mm. Yeah. And so, right, just the other day someone was like, well, isn't it just Arizona and Florida and, you know, people are just going to nice weather states? And, yes, those are places with brain gain, absolutely. But like I said, so is Colorado. So is Kansas and Iowa. They're not large numbers of brain gain but they do have brain gain, right? And so we have the same climate. We have the same topography and geography, right? You're still in the middle in Iowa. You're still in the middle in Kansas. So they are doing something right. I think I think there are places that attract folks because of great weather or social climate, values and diversity, um, just having awesome bars and restaurants. But because Nebraskans are so hardworking, I don't think that's what's happening here, right? I don't think we're just going off and laying in the Arizona sun all day. Uh, We're going to places like Iowa and Kansas where the institutions of higher education are really strong and really attractive and where there are workforces that excite us, those thick labor markets where I have lots of opportunity. I can grow my pay and still have the same quality of life and be able to drive home to Nebraska if I need to. So, yeah, you know, people are going to Vermont. It's not warm there, so it's not it's not just one thing. It's a really complicated cost calculus when someone makes the decision to move out of state and no one thing is going to drive them all the time. We're going to hear anecdotes every which way. You're going to hear people move to Texas and go, no income tax is awesome. But they probably didn't move to Texas for no income taxes. They moved because they had a great job and then realized no income taxes are awesome. But for instance, I left Texas. I also left Nevada. Those are both no income tax states. I looked at my gross pay and I said, I got to go. So it's not one thing. And there are places just like Nebraska that are doing okay. 
And so there's lots to explore in that middle space for us. I know you brought some research today um, from, I think, some some stuff that's probably uh, come to your attention since before I prepped for this interview even. So what, what, do I, what have I not been asking about that you think is important for people to know about this topic? You know, here in Nebraska, we have a fairly large number of folks that have some college but no degree. That's actually the largest when you look at population by levels of educational attainment. That's the largest group. Uh, That's a real opportunity, especially in this sort of like post-COVID world where getting professional training and coming back into the workforce and sort of progressively moving through occupations, that's a real opportunity for Nebraska. If we put all those folks through, got them the degree, got them into great high-wage jobs, that would really push up our rankings on the number of folks with bachelor's degree or more. And that would start to signal to businesses and folks in other states that, hey, we're a high-skill workforce, come on over. So I think that's a real area uh, for recruiting and retaining folks that are already here in the state. So has there been anything that's been proposed in the legislative session this year that you've noticed that you think might be helpful in addressing brain drain? You know, there are clearly some efforts to lower taxes. And I don't want to say taxes will never attract folks to Nebraska. The research doesn't necessarily support that, um, but it's not that it's wrong. It's just it doesn't wholly solve this issue. We're seeing lots of energy around scholarships. Scholarships are a great way to retain Nebraskans, put them in school in Nebraska. The longer they're here, the more likely they're they're going to stay. So that's really exciting for us. We are seeing some energy around internship programs and really connecting students to the workforce early and often. That's really exciting too. Um, and so other things maybe people, you've, gone, you've given a bunch of ideas for what people maybe should be focusing on if you're someone in a position of power who has influence over what the culture seems to be here and what some of the policies seem to be. Is there anything you would specifically recommend? Like here's, here's where you should start tomorrow. Great question. If I if I could do anything, yeah. right? <laughs> you become governor. What's first step? That will never happen. <laughs> um, yeah. So I do think we really need to focus on our anchor institutions, universities, healthcare centers. Uh, they tend to provide a lot of that skill and support into the workforce that help attract folks. Housing is another real area. Um, Senator Matt Williams a few years ago started a middle-income rural housing program. I think he called it workforce housing. That's done really well. I think there should be a lot of energy around projects around housing since we know that's such a big cost to folks and it's so important for quality of life. You know, there are some recreation and tourism amenity ideas being thrown around. I think they have potential. But if jobs are the number one reason folks move, I think we really need to focus on that first and then start to have some fun. All right. Well, so for people who maybe are like, okay, this sounds like interesting research, but I have to actually look at the numbers because just hearing broad uh, summaries of it on the radio maybe gets me part of the way there, but I want to be fully informed. Where can they go to learn more? Oh, we would love folks to come to our website, Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, cpar.unomaha.edu. We uh, track this data. We put out a lot of our public presentations. We have a running list of all of our contract and 
contract and grant research projects. And we also house a lot of data dashboards, data on every county, every legislative district over time and in comparison to things, just stuff we know folks want to know. It's as a result of our longtime relationship with the United States Census Bureau. So we just want folks to have data. I really believe when folks have data, they feel more confident making really hard decisions. That's why we do what we do for policymakers, right? Elected officials have a really hard job. They have to stand up and talk about very complex topics every day and take strong opinions one way or the other. Data is helpful. Uh, so we want to make it very available to them as well as decision makers all over the state. Uh, so come to our website. Check out what we have. We're very available to folks. We want folks to reach out with questions about what's going on. Well, I appreciate getting to know what was going on uh, as much as I can. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. To end today's show, here is Joshua LeBure reviewing the documentary Ryuchi Sakamoto, Coda. In the documentary Ryuchi Sakamoto, Coda, Director Stephen Nomura Shibli takes us on a journey into the life and work of Raichi Sakamoto, one of the most influential musicians of our time. The film explores not only Sakamoto's creative process, but also his personal life, his activism, and his long illness. Sakamoto died last month after a long battle with cancer. He was 71 years old. The film showcases Sakamoto's innovative approach to music, and how he blends sounds from nature and other man-made sources to create unique compositions. One of the most memorable scenes in the film shows Sakamoto's curiosity about how rain would sound on a bucket. He puts the bucket over his head and walks out into the rain before putting a microphone inside to capture it. Koda also explores Sakamoto's work as a composer for films, including his score for classic art house cinema like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie, and the score for The Revenant, and his Oscar-winning score for the 1987 film The Last Emperor. The documentary provides a glimpse into the process for making these scores and how Sakamoto's approach to music elevated the films. Aside from his music, the film also highlights Sakamoto's activism and his dedication to anti-nuclear causes. Sakamoto, who grew up in post-World War II Japan, had a deep appreciation for the importance of peace and the dangers of nuclear weapons. We get a look into how Sakamoto uses his platform to raise awareness about these issues and to push for change. The camera work in Koda has an effortless verite aesthetic that feels alive and heightened. This film matches the curiosity of the subject. The film is interested in the things that Sakamoto finds interesting. It holds a lot of compassion and space for its subject, and it manages to avoid a lot of the trappings of a biographical documentary about a highly respected artist. It's an utterly human and deeply beautiful film. At its heart, it's a film about how the best of humanity can live right next to its most horrific tragedies. In the opening scenes, we see Sakamoto exploring an area that was destroyed by nuclear weapons, where he finds a broken out-of-tune piano and plucks at it. 
pulling out some beautiful dissonant sounds to include in a piece later on. Beauty and art can still be found in destruction. We also get a look at Sakamoto's battle with cancer. The documentary provides an intimate look about how Sakamoto dealt with his diagnosis and how it affected his work and personal life. And despite the challenges he faced, Sakamoto continued to create music and to use his voice to make a difference. Raichi Sakamoto Koda is a powerful and moving documentary that provides a touching look at the life and work of a great musician. To give you a taste of Sakamoto's incredible work, here's a short segment from The Revenant main theme. Written and composed by Rechi Sakamoto and Alvin Noto for the film The Revenant. Rachi Sakamoto Koda is now available on Mubi and Video On Demand. (laughs) 